Section 5 of Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 8, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Henrietta Maria, Chapter 2, Part 1. At the epoch when Henrietta Maria was apostrophized by the most popular poet of her day as Great Gloriana, Bright Gloriana, Fair as High Heaven is, and Fertile as Earth. She had been heard to consider herself the happiest woman in the world, happy as wife, mother, and queen. All was peaceful at this juncture, the discontents of the English people, whilst Charles I, governed without a parliament, were hushed in grim repose. It was a repose like the lull of the winds before the burst of the electrical tornado, but she knew it not. Henrietta Maria was not only the queen, but the beauty of the British court, she had, about the year 1633, attained the perfection of her charms, in face and figure. She was the theme of every poet, the star of all beholders. The moral life of Charles I, his conjugal attachment to his queen, and the refined tastes of both, gave the court a degree of elegance till then unknown. Edmund Waller, a gentleman of senatorial rank, a kinsman of the Cromwell family, who were all save one, gentlemen of the most ardent loyalty, exercised his poetic talents as honorary poet laureate. His polished stanzas, descriptive of the beauty of the queen and of the noble ladies of her circle, are now more valuable for their historical allusions than for their poetic merit. On the Queen's Portrait by Van Dyck well fair the hand which to our humble sight presents that beauty which the dazzling light of royal splendor hides from weaker eyes and all access save by his art denies the gracious image seeming to give leave propitious stands vouchsafing to be seen and by our muse saluted mighty queen in whom the extremes of power and beauty move the queen of britain and the queen of love heaven hath preferred a sceptre to your hand favored our freedom more than your command. Beauty hath crowned you, and you must have been the whole world's mistress other than a queen. In the Van Dyke Room at Windsor Castle are four portraits of Henrietta, one of which probably inspired the foregoing verses. Three of these paintings are full lengths. In the first, the queen is evidently a girl in her teens, the features are very delicate and pretty, with a pale, clear complexion, beautiful dark eyes, and chestnut hair. Her form is slight and exquisitely graceful. She is dressed in white satin. The bodice of her dress is nearly high, with a large falling collar trimmed with points. The bodice is made tight to her form, closed in front with bows of cherry-colored ribbon, and is finished from the waist with several large tabs, richly embroidered. The sleeves are very full and descend to the elbows, where they are confined by ruffles. One arm is encircled with a narrow black bracelet, the other one with costly gems. She wears a string of pear-shaped pearls about her neck. A red ribbon, twisted with pearls, is carelessly placed about her hair at the back of her head. She stands by a table, and her hand rests on two red roses, which are placed near the crown. One of Van Dyck's most magnificent paintings represents Queen Henrietta in the same piece with the king, her husband, and her two eldest sons, Charles II and James II. Henrietta and Charles I are seated in chairs of state. She has her infant in her arms, whom she holds with peculiar grace, 
but bestows her attention on the Prince of Wales, who is standing by the king, with his little hand caressingly placed on the royal father's knee. Two little dogs are in the foreground, between the king and queen. One sits at the king's foot, the other stands on its hind legs, with its paws on the queen's dress, looking up at the baby in her arms, whose attention it has attracted. The infant is about six months old, in long white draperies, black-eyed and intelligent, but has no border to its droll little cap. The appearance of the queen is maternal, but she has an air of care and sadness. Her hair is confined with a string of large round pearls. A cross adorns her bosom. Her dress is rich brown brocade, with very full lace ruffles, and the graceful little cape, called in the modern vocabulary of costume, a bertha, falls over the bodice, which is finished round the bosom and at the waist with a purple band. King Charles is very handsome, graceful, and chivalric. He wears the collar and star of the garter, with a regal dress of purple velvet, slashed with white satin, a Vandyke collar, and white satin shoes with enormous rosettes. The crowns, both of the king and queen, are placed on a small round table. The palace of Whitehall appears in the background. To turn from the characteristics of Henrietta, perpetuated by the pencil, to those effected by the pen, we must quote the lines of Waller, inscribed to the lady who could do anything but sleep when she chose. In this elegant little poem, she has personified sleep, who in the first person is supposed thus to address the insomnolent queen. My charge it is those languors to repair, which nature feels from sorrow, toil, and care. Rest to the limbs and quiet I confer on troubled minds, but not can add to her, whom heaven and her transcendent charms have placed above those ills which wretched mortals taste. Yet as her earnest wish invokes my power, I shall no more decline that sacred bower, where Gloriana, the great mistress, lies, but gently fanning those victorious eyes. Charm all the senses, till the joyful sun, without a rival, half his course has run, who, while my hand that fairer light confines, may boast himself the fairest thing that shines. If the queen could be deceived out of a sense of her mortality by such adulatory stanzas as these, the time was fast approaching, which would show that she was in no wise distinguished above other sojourners in this world of trouble, save by the pressure of a double load of sorrow. That insomnolency, which was adroitly turned into compliment by the poetical adulator, was probably induced by the prognostics of the approaching political storm. Another sketch of Henrietta, in Waller's poetical portraiture, is still more elegant. Could nature there no other lady grace, whom we might dare to love with such a face, such a complexion, and so radiant eyes, such lovely motion, and such sharp replies? Beyond our reach, and yet within our sight, what envious power has placed this glorious light? All her affections are to one inclined, her bounty and compassion to mankind, to whom, while she so far extends her grace, she makes but good the promise of her face. For mercy has, could mercy's self be seen, no sweeter look than this propitious queen. Queen Henrietta had made such slow progress in the English language in the first years of her marriage that her deficiencies in 1632 became a matter of serious consideration. Previously, Charles I, among other reasons for dismissing her French household, had sent to her mother that his queen obstinately refused to learn the English tongue. This fault was so sedulously mended in subsequent years that her sons could not express themselves in French when they were resident in Paris. 
Madame de Motteville likewise complains that Queen Henrietta had, in her constant practice of English, forgot the delicate idioms of her mother tongue. Mr. Wingate, a learned barrister of Gray's Inn, was, in 1632, appointed to Her Majesty's tutor, and to facilitate her acquisition of English, a grand mask, called the Queen's Pastoral, was acted at Whitehall. The part destined for the Queen to learn by rote was so unmercifully long, that Her Majesty complained piteously to her ladies of the labor of learning it, and said, that it was as long as a whole play. The parts of her ladies were equally lengthy and heavy, so that the queen's pastoral took eight hours in the performance. The piece was written by a young aspirant, and possessed no literary merit. It was from the pen of Walter Montague, the second son of the Earl of Manchester, who finished life as an ascetic priest, and the queen's grand almoner, of whom we shall have much to say hereafter. He was in youth a gay gallant of the court, little anticipating his own transmutation. Ben Jonson was usually the poet of the courtly masks. Unfortunately, for the queen, he and Inigo Jones had had a furious quarrel, regarding their merits as poet and designer of masks, and on this account, the queen's pastoral had been furnished with words by the unskilled amateur Montague. It was the part that the queen took in this luckless pastoral, which called forth the furious vituperations of Master Prynne in his Histromastrix, yet it was only for Her Majesty's private exercise in her own courtly circles. In honor of the birth of the second English prince, and to show how little they participated in the illiberal attacks of the fanatic agitator Prynne, which occurred about the same period, the queen was invited, by the gentlemen of Lincoln's Inn and of the Temple, to a splendid mask and ballet given at their charge. The Lincoln's Inn and Temple masks lasted three days, they put the majority of the people into an ecstasy of good humor, and for a while contributed to soften the sour and acrid temper of the times. These outward glories were, notwithstanding, checkered with dark indications of approaching troubles. A concealed volcano was glowing beneath the feet of those who gaily trod the courtly measures in the elegant and really harmless ballets, which rendered still more furious the fanaticism of Prynne and his coadjutors. The brutal attack of Prynne on the queen in his histromastrix drew down on him the vengeance of Charles in a manner inconsistent with his former character, though perfectly consistent with the law at that time in force. No one commented on the conduct of Prynne with more terse severity than that honest but mistaken fanatic himself. It is well to conclude the subject with his own words, which he wrote when he was keeper of the record of the tower after the accession of Charles II. King Charles ought to have taken my head when he took my ears. It is to Henrietta's great credit that she did all in her power to save Prynne from the infliction of the pillatory and the consequent loss of his ears, which was part of that barbarous and disgusting punishment. The Queen's favorite residences were Somerset House, St. James's Palace, and the Palace of Woodstock. Her partiality to these palaces was principally induced by the facilities they presented for the Roman Catholic worship. Somerset House was settled on her as her dower palace, in case of widowhood, and this was peculiarly her private residence. St. James's was her family abode, and the habitation of her children when they were in London. In each of these residences, she had chapels and lodgings for her twelve Capuchin almoners. Woodstock was her favorite country palace, and here she likewise had a regular chapel for her worship. 
While Waller's lyrics were doing their best to hymn the queen into immortality, Van Dyke's glorious pencil was illustrating her personal graces, and in Nego Jones's devising the scenery of the masks and ballets, which formed the amusements of her picturesque and stately court, Ben Jonson, Beaumont, and Fletcher wrote dramatic poems for the purpose of perfecting the queen in our language. Her majesty often took part in these diversions, but much less publicly than her predecessors. The royal taste for these elegant amusements caused the great nobility to dispense the superfluity of their incomes in encouragement of the fine arts. When their majesties paid visits in their progresses, it was the fashion of their noble hosts to engage some poets, distinguished by their approbation, to compose a dramatic entertainment for their amusement. Such was the case when the Earl of Newcastle received the royal pair at his castle of Bolsover in Derbyshire. On this occasion, he obtained the assistance of Ben Jonson to write the verses which form part of their majesty's entertainment. So much pleased were the royal pair with the literary taste of the Earl and his loyal hospitalities at Bolsover that they agreed in the appointment of Newcastle as governor to Charles, Prince of Wales. The Queen brought into the world at St. James's, January 28, 1635, the Princess Elizabeth. The States of Holland sent an especial embassy to congratulate Her Majesty on the birth of this little one, and propitiated her with rich presents, which are described as a massy piece of ambergris, two fair and almost transparent china basins, a curious clock, and of far greater value than these two beautiful originals of Titian, and two of Tintoret, to add to the galleries of paintings with which the king was enriching Whitehall and Hampton Court. It has been said that the queen brought up her children in the exercise of the Catholic ritual till they were thirteen. There exists a great mass of evidence to prove that this assertion was false, for whatever she might wish to do, it is certain that they had governors and tutors devoted to the Church of England. The first letter the queen wrote to her young son is preserved in the British Museum. The prince was then but eight years old. He had been obstinate in his refusals to swallow some physical potion with which his royal mother wished to regale him. The queen to her son, Charles, Prince of Wales. Charles, I am sorry that I must begin my first letter with chiding you, because I hear that you will not take your physics. I hope it was only for this day, and that tomorrow you will do it. For if you will not, I must come to you and make you take it, for it is for your health. I have given order to my lord of Newcastle to send me word tonight whether you will or not. Therefore I hope you will not give me the pains to go, and so I rest. Your affectionate mother, Henriette Marie. To my dear son, the Prince, 1638. The Prince, in answer to his governor, who made suitable remonstrances according to the Queen's directions, wrote him the following original note, which, though penned between double-ruled lines in a round-text hand, gives some indication of the sprightly wit that afterwards distinguished him. Many who dislike pills and potions will sympathize with the prince. Charles, Prince of Wales, to his governor, Lord Newcastle. My lord, I would not have you take too much physic, for it doth always make me worse, and I think it will do the like with you. I ride every day, and am ready to follow any other directions from you. Make haste back to him that loves you, Charles P. It is possible that Charles I might have successfully contended with the inimical party, if at the critical juncture of the year 1638, 
he had not incurred the uncompromising hatred of Cardinal Richelieu, by granting an asylum in England to the object of that minister's persecution, the Queen Mother of France, Marie de Medicis. The affectionate reception given by Charles to the mother of his queen was a fresh instance of his conjugal attachment. The king traveled in state to meet Marie de Medicis at Harwich, where she landed and escorted her, with the greatest respect, to London. Her entry was made there with as much solemnity as if she had been at the pinnacle of royal prosperity. In reality, she was a distressed fugitive, impoverished, and hunted from kingdom to kingdom through the ingratitude of Richelieu, the creature who originally owed his grandeur to her favor. The filial care of Henrietta was active in providing all that could contribute to soothe the wounded mind of her mother, especially in proving that, fallen as she was from her high estate, she was in the eyes of a dutiful daughter, more a queen than ever. The words of one of the servants of the fugitive queen will prove how warmly she was welcomed to England by her loving child. You shall only know that Sir Sabat, who officiated at the superintendent of her household, had permission to mark with his chalks fifty chambers at St. James's as her apartments, the whole furnished by the peculiar care of the Queen of Great Britain, who seemed to convert all her ordinary occupations into attention to give satisfaction to the queen her mother. But there was a personal trait of affection in Henrietta, which spoke more to the heart than any cost or splendor of reception could have done. When the royal carriage, in which were seated Marie de Medicis and her son-in-law, Charles I, entered the great quadrangle of the Palace of St. James, Queen Henrietta, at the first flourish of trumpets, left her chamber and descended the great staircase to receive her august mother. She was accompanied by her children, the little Prince of Wales, the Duke of York, and the two princesses, Mary and the infant Elizabeth. The queen being then near her time and in critical health, a chair was placed for her majesty at the foot of the stairs, but when she perceived her royal parent, such was her anxiety to show her duty and tenderness, that she arose, and hurrying to her carriage, endeavored, with her trembling hands, to open the door, which she was too weak to accomplish. The moment her mother alighted, she fell on her knees before her to receive her blessing, and the royal children knelt around them. Everyone who saw it was affected to tears at the meeting. The restless spirit of Marie de Medicis and the selfish turbulence of her numerous and hungry train made but an ill return to Charles and Henrietta for their disinterested and loving kindness to her in her distress. Henrietta related with tears to the sympathizing historian, Madame de Motteville. How dreadfully the king was embarrassed by the extravagance of her mother's attendants, and when he could not find means to satisfy their rapacity, they had the folly and malignity to carry their complaints to Parliament and petition for larger allowances. That Parliament, which had viewed the visit of the queen mother with inimical feeling, and had considered the circumstance of a second establishment for the Catholic worship at court, with angry disgust. The queen, in the winter of 1640, lost her youngest daughter, the Princess Anne, who died December 8, 1640, at the age of four years. Just before the royal child expired, the necessity of prayer being mentioned to her, she said that she did not think she could say her long prayer, meaning the Lord's Prayer, but she would say her short one and repeated, Lighten mine eyes, O Lord, that I sleep not the sleep of death. There is an important section in Madame de Motteville's work 
being neither more nor less than a historical memoir, of which the Queen of Charles I is the authoress, quite as much as the celebrated memoirs of Sully were written by that great man. The tract is headed, Abrégé des Révolutions d'Angleterre, and is thus introduced by the editress. Recital made by the Queen of England, Henriette Marie, daughter of Henri Cotte and Marie de Medici, in the Monastery of the Virgins of St. Mary de Chalot, of which she was foundress, written by Madame de Motteville, to whom this princess dictated. The regnal history of Charles I is too wide a field for the biographer of his wife to enter, unless forced upon the portion in which the queen was personally involved. Yet the view taken by Henrietta herself of some parts of that history justly demands a place in her life. The queen relates affairs without troubling her head, whether by her admissions, her much-loved lord, is convicted of invading the English constitution or not, for she evidently comes to the point in ignorance, that such was a crime. Henrietta declares that when a vast number of books of common prayer were prepared to be sent to the Scotch, at the time of the liturgy being forced on that unwilling people, her husband, glad to take the opportunity of her attention being then forcefully drawn to the subject, brought her one of the common prayer books and sat down by her for a whole evening and prevailed on her to examine it with him. He pressed on her notice the fact, which no living creature can deny, that though there is much in the mass book not to be found in the common prayer book, yet there are very few pages in the common prayer which are not supplied from the mass book and breviary. Henrietta's prejudices were scarcely neutralized by this conviction, for she adds directly, It was this fatal book which occasioned the first revolt in Scotland. The rage of the people, the queen observed, had been excited against Strafford because he had obtained funds of the Irish Parliament, sufficient to enable the king to raise an army. He had likewise proposed to his royal master the plan to gain a greater degree of power by means of this army. The Parliament pursued him with vengeance. Strafford boldly requested the king to let them take their course and do their worst. The king, she says, too yielding, did as this generous minister advised, and suffered him to be immured in the tower, when there his enemies loaded him with calumnies and crimes. For a long time he was brought every day before the commons to be interrogated. He replied to every impeachment, with dauntless spirit and irrepressible wit. Many who had been indifferent towards him at first became his warmest partisans. The queen, observes Madame de Motteville, while telling me these things, interrupted her narrative by this description of Strafford. He was ugly, but agreeable enough in person, and had the finest hands in the world. Notwithstanding the spirited defense of the fascinating and brilliant Strafford, the queen acknowledged that she was dreadfully alarmed for him, and labored with all the energy of female diplomacy to save this faithful friend. We suspect that her exertions did Strafford no good, but a prodigious deal of harm, However, she satisfied herself that she was doing wonders in his cause. Every evening, says her narrative, was a rendezvous given, and the most meachant of his enemies admitted to a conference with her, by the way of the backstairs of the palace, leading into the apartments of one or other of her ladies of honor, who happened to be off duty and away in the country. At the foot of the backstairs, the queen often met the leaders of the parliamentary faction alone, lighted only by a flambeau which she held in her hand. 
she offered them all things to turn them from their purpose, yet gained no one but Lord Denby, that is Digby. It is to be feared that in these interviews, which resemble the conferences between the beautiful Marie Antoinette and the demagogue Mirabeau, that the wily Republicans contrived to elicit intelligence from the vivacious and loquacious Henrietta, which were fearfully injurious to her own party. Only prevailed upon a lady to talk on what is nearest to her heart, says the diplomatist. You have ought to do but listen, and all her intentions are revealed. The observation is true, and ought to be sufficient to keep woman out of the thorny paths of political intrigue. The next great mistake made by the queen was her choice of agents in negotiating with the army, which had become disgusted with the parliament and were inclined to declare for the king. Two gentlemen belonging to the queen's household held commands in this army and were entrusted by her majesty as agents to bring it over to the king. These were George Goring, her chamberlain, and Arthur Wilmot. The king determined to send the queen's equerry, Harry German to negotiate a dispute which had occurred between them. The queen had reason to believe that it would prove a most dangerous office for German to mediate this quarrel. She called him into her cabinet, and after communicating the king's intention, told him that her fear was that in case the parliament got an inkling of the business, they would drive him and every other confidential servant from her household. At that instant, the king entered into the cabinet and said playfully, if to be done, it is he that must do it. He must not do it, replied the queen, and when you learn why, you will be of my mind. Speak then, madam, replied the king, still smiling, that I may know what it is that I have commanded, and that you forbid. The queen then explained seriously how fearfully inconvenienced they should be if one of their principal servants was discovered in this negotiation and driven from them. The king allowed she was right, but said, There was no one to whom Goring and Wilmot would listen but German, who was esteemed by both, and was mild and conciliatory. Besides, all ought to be risked, for Stafford's sake. The queen yielded to these reasons, and German departed on his errand. He represented to his two friends, Goring and Wilmot, the message of the king, with which he was charged. The flyy temper of Goring was aggravated by finding that he was not destined to command the army. But being exceedingly deceitful, he dissimulated his wrath. That very evening, he stole forth secretly and betrayed the whole scheme to the parliament. There can be no doubt that the real object of his envy was Strafford. He was determined that he should die without aid. The event took place directly, which the queen had anticipated, the Parliament sent humbly to request that the King would please to command that no person of the Queen's household should quit Whitehall. The King and Queen were then morally certain that some person had betrayed their design, and that German's mission had been discovered. But neither of them suspected the frank, rattling, gallant George Goring as the informer. On the contrary, they were peculiarly anxious for his safety, lest the ebullitions of his zealous loyalty should compromise it. The whole intrigue ended with German and several other gentlemen in the royal household flying to France. It is certain that these courtiers, though descended from the heroes of Cressy and Agincourt, were troubled with very little of their superfluous valor, and evidently deemed discretion the better part of it. But the only man who could have guided valor by the soul of genius, and righted the car of state, 
whirled out of its place, now bereft of all aid, by the envy of the little great men of the court, was nearly hunted to the last gasp. Yet day by day, Strafford defended himself at the bar of the house, with undaunted eloquence that agitated all hearts. The king and queen witnessed the scene with painful interest from lattice boxes, and every evening they met each other with aching hearts and tearful eyes, as the queen told Madame de Motville. To the surprise of their majesties, Goring declared himself vociferously against Strafford and the royal party. And when afterwards, he was reproached by message from the queen for his ingratitude, when he had been her officer so many years, he affirmed that, his conduct arose from his aversion to having any coadjutor in the service he meant to render their majesties. Thus this man's egotism effected the first fatal blow to the cause of King Charles. Strafford, when he found he had lost his friend German, gave himself up for lost. It was not, continues the queen, that the viceroy of Ireland feared to die. He could easily have saved himself by flight more than once, but he would not do it. All his ambition was bent on confounding the malice of his enemies by the proofs of his innocence. He ought to have been forced to take more sure means. The queen's frequent expression, that the king and herself were left without servants, arises from a political movement of the parliament by which the whole royal household were changed at a blow. Some of the leaders of the opposition were placed in immediate domestication with the royal family, as, for instance, the discontented peer, Lord Essex, was made Lord Chamberlain, and his brother-in-law, the Marquis of Hertford, was appointed governor of the Prince of Wales, in hopes that he would act as a rival claimant of the crown. Being the representative of the Greys, the hereditary leaders of the Calvinistic party, or Edward VI's church. End of section 5